Hello, uh, thanks for listening and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Uh, this is the second episode in what we're hoping to become a series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for listening. I'm Lewis DeFrates, I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here in Cambridge and today I'm joined by Dr Jennifer Luff, who is an Associate Professor in Modern American History at Durham University. Jennifer's work tends to focus on American politics and labour in the 20th century at both a macro and a micro level, although her more recent research has steered her towards transatlantic interaction and comparison. I was also taught uh, by Jennifer as part <laughs> of my MA course a few years back, so it's a personal treat to be able to talk to her today. Uh, her first book, Common Sense Anti-Communism, Labour and Civil Liberties Between the World Wars, came out on University of North Carolina Press in 2012. More recently, she had an article just this year in the Journal of Contemporary History, titled Labour Anti-Communism in the United States of America and the United Kingdom, 1920-49, to which focuses on the roles of trade unions in shaping each country's very different approaches to internal communist organising during that particular period. I'd also like to give a shout out to an older article of hers, uh, Surrogate Supervisors, <laughs> Railway Spotters and the Origins of Railway Surveillance, which was published in 2008 in Labour Studies in Working Class History. It's a really great read and I'd recommend you have a look at it. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, it's great to see you again, Lewis. Yeah, great to see you. So we're going to talk about the paper that you're giving today, a little bit about your wider research, and maybe a bit more about your broader experiences as a historian and also as a person more great. generally. So the paper you're giving today is titled Secrets, Lies and the Special Relationship in the Early Cold War. It's been pre-circulated for attendees of the seminar to read before we meet, but could you give a brief synopsis for the listeners at home? Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks so much for having me. So the paper um, takes up a historiographical and methodological problem, um, which arises from discovering a great big historical secret. Mm. And I'll just briefly tell you what the big historical secret is. Um, I won't bury the lead. So the secret is that beginning in the early 1920s and lasting through the early Cold War, the British government ran a very large program to vet and blacklist suspected communists from government service. And this program focused, um, as far as released records show, almost entirely on workers. That is, on um, shipbuilders, on munitions workers, on office cleaners, starting in 1935. And it um, exempted from scrutiny senior civil servants um, who sat the civil service exam, so people like diplomats mm -hmm. or people like um, junior ministers. So it was very much a working class purge, you know, not a, a broad um, kind of McCarthyist purge like we saw in the United States in the early Cold War. So the British government kept this policy secret from its inception through its um, codification by the British cabinet in 1927. Um, and despite repeated challenges by a, a suspicious public that thought that this might be happening. And the policy is extremely well documented because there was a great deal of dissent in the British government. Um, about the policy. So at numerous um, times, the cabinet had quite strenuous arguments about the propriety of the policy, about its effectiveness, about its morality and ethics. So because it was um, so disputed, it's extremely well documented. Um, for other reasons as well, it's extremely well documented. So that's the secret. Right. So the problem that I um, confronted when I started to try to write about it is it's actually not so easy to sort of make space in the world um, for a big historical secret protected by lots of lying, um, in part because contemporaries' understandings don't incorporate it 
in part because historiographical interpretations um, don't um, have room for that kind of um, discovery. So in the paper, I try to work through how to write about it, thinking about how other historians have dealt with secrets and lies. And I turn to counterfactual thinking to try to reason through um, what would happen um, for, um, in this case, the special relationship with the US for atomic um, research and for American anti-communism if the secret came out. So trying to use counterfactual reasoning as a way to move from um, sort of expose into yeah. interpretation. Okay, great, yes. And that seems to be something, yeah, in the paper you do talk a lot about the importance of this secret and how it's an archival finding yeah. of yours. Do you worry, is there a lot of pressure when you go into the archives that you need to uncover something like a secret, or was this a surprise to you? Going to it was a complete surprise to me. I, I had no intention of actually continuing to work on this topic at all. I thought I had written the last of anything I would ever write about anti-communism. So no, in some ways, sometimes I call it an inconvenient truth, right? right? <laughs> it's something that I didn't yeah. quite want to find, but once you find it, you know, you don't want to give it away, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I've actually had to um, turn myself into a scholar of Britain, right, to try to write about it. Right with the support of um, very helpful colleagues at Durham, like Matt Johnson and Philip Williamson. Um, but the, I, th I think we often, as historians, sort of fantasize about a big, a big archival discovery, mm -hmm. and they're really actually quite few and far yeah, between. Very, very case, yeah, right. and more often, I think our work um, proceeds by um, building on each other's scholarship, mm -hmm. right? And you, you in, in that situation, you can sort of uh, refer to widely known facts and build on um, interpretation rather than have to lay out this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, yeah. right? Which is the challenge of a great mm -hmm. big long-term secret. Right. Strangely. Yeah, yeah it's a challenge. And so, like you were saying, this, it's this archival finding that's dragged you more towards looking at transatlantic matters in the United Kingdom. Yeah, I had started to, just as a, a small project, uh, do a comparative analysis of British and American labor and communism because when I had written my um, 2012 book, I'd always been fascinated by this apparent British toleration. And so I thought, well, I'll just you know write up something about this, you know, partly because I was new to Britain yeah. and wanted to learn more about Britain, and then sort of you know back myself you know closer and closer you know into this uh, kind of historical edge <laughs> that I'm stuck on now. <laughs> yeah, sure. I suppose you've probably answered it partly already, but how would you say this paper in particular fits into your current work and your wider research interests? Yeah, so I've had a long time interest in um, political policing and also in really kind of popular processes of state making mm -hmm. and popular um, processes of, of building uh, repression, right, mm -hmm. repressive regimes. And so um, now I'm writing a book about this British Red Purge um, from its inception to its um, apparent ending. Um, and really looking at it in a comparative and transnational context, as you say. So um, what's distinctive about the British um, uh, political policing regime from, say, the American one, which is very public, which involves you know, congressional hearings and, and public um, purges, or from the Soviet system, which is more about sort of uh, uh, terror, dragging people out of their houses mm -hmm. in the middle of the night, or the Eastern European regime, which is about... Um, you know, a system of informers where lots and lots of people are informing on each other and all are sort of aware that there's an inform informing system. Yeah. In Britain, political policing was often genuinely secret, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the state made enormous efforts successfully to disguise um, its political policing. Um, and citizens were often genuinely unaware. So I'm now calling these, um, these British political uh, police uh, secret gardeners, that's what I'm calling the book, um, because these, the, the British regime sought to, behind the scenes, um, unbeknownst to its subjects, 
sort of cultivate particular political tendencies, um, conservative and moderate ones, while rooting out um, and stamping out more radical ones. So that to the public, this looked like a natural political terrain, but in fact, it was carefully cultivated behind the scenes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. just quickly, I think it's, it speaks to the comparative history of surveillance, mm -hmm. right? which I think we have lots and lots of research now about particular surveillance regimes and policing regimes, and we're now at a moment where we can start to put some of those together and have an empirical understanding of how modern political surveillance worked um, in right. the 20th century, which isn't based on sort of abstract um, theorizations about how it might have worked to produce particular political subjectivities, mm -hmm. but we can see in different places at different times political surveillance work differently. And what does that mean yeah. you know, for the history of the 20th century? Yeah, and so, because I'm, I'm really struck by this idea of you finding something in the archive that completely changes how people were thinking about the surveillance during the period. Would you say that the, fi the finding you made, was that a run counter completely to what people were thinking about, have thought about surveillance during the period, or is it more that you've found, you've been able to flesh out what people imagined might have been happening at the time? Mm. So I think historians have known for quite a while uh, that the, and contemporaries knew, that the British state um, had a, a large um, uh, capacity to do political surveillance. Mm -hmm. But the British state has never done a sort of wholesale um, opening of the archives as many states have, you know, as Lustration did in Eastern Europe or, you know, the Church Committee did for the FBI in the 1970s. So the state has always parceled out. Um, very selective documents and prevented uh, any kind of comprehensive view of all of its um, security operations. So I, I think that um, what, what is genuinely different and transformative about this find is it gives us a sort of a core sample of the British um, security state and operation, just how it dealt with um, government workers across time on, in a sort of more comprehensive way. So I, I think that there's probably a great deal more that we don't know about how the British um, security state operated. And we won't know unless those materials are released. I think these were essentially released accidentally, okay. you know, not quite intentionally. Sure, yeah. And um, so one of the topics that you talk about in the paper is the relationship between British and American authorities right. over this issue and how much can be disclosed and how much... That, and that's what I think the power of the counterfactual is in... Yeah, how much one source can give to another. Yeah. And I'm interested in that in terms of the special relationship because you talk about the special relationship in your paper. And yeah, I'm trying to formulate yeah, this yeah, into yeah. a question. Yeah, do you, do you think that uh, that shows a particular strength of the special relationship during the period or is it, is it perhaps more fractious than people have traditionally conceived of it? I mean, I think you know, the scholars have for a long time um, understood the special relationship as... Uh, uh, contentious, as contingent, as tentative, and as, um, you know, governed by um, tetchiness on both sides about the shifting um, global power um, of each, you know, supposed partner. But the, what has always been um, understood as the bedrock of that relationship was intelligence um, collaboration, right, and scientific um, collaboration. So here I think that my findings point to um, a genuine um, danger to that relationship that the British government made an enormous effort to conceal. Right. Because, you know, the, the, the consequences for the special relationship, I think, would have been very great mm -hmm. had the Americans understood how much um, the British government misrepresented its knowledge about um, uh, communist uh, presence among its government employees and information sharing that they were conducting with the Soviet Union in those years. Right. Okay. And the intention, I presume, is to turn it into a book. 
eventually. Yes. Right. Yes. Great. So we look forward to that coming out Thank soon. You. Yeah. So I suppose we'll talk, talk a bit more generally now. Um, what's a book or article that you've read in the last 12 months? Or, you know, we can use whatever time frame you like because it's got you excited as yeah. a historian. Yeah, I, there's a lot. Um, one that I've been recommending a lot is Catherine Verdery's My Life as a Spy, okay. which is this fascinating book. It's an anthropologist mm. who studied uh, Romania. And she did ethnographies in the 70s and 80s. Um, and then in the 90s and 2000s, um, slowly began to discover that the Romanians had kept a very large surveillance file on her. So she goes back um, to Romania and, and revisits her multiple thousand page file and then reconstructs the surveillance conducted on her and sets it against her own um, records of her research. So she, it's a, both a sort of intellectual autobiography of her own experience as a you know, very um, significant anthropologist and a, a very um, sort of pitiless self-critique of her um, research practices and of ethnography writ large. Mm -hmm. You know, she shows, for example, that ethnographers helped, um, and other social scientists helped Romania and other um, Eastern European states actually expand their surveillance of the population outside of the cities, you know, by their very presence um, in those countries in those years, contrary to their understanding. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a great teaching book for helping people um, see the development of a, of a, you know, very impressive scholar and, um, and for uh, you seeing how that, um, uh, it's also just thinking about surveillance in a comparative, um, in a comparative way. Another book I often uh, recommend that I love is Michelle Lamont's How Professors Think. Have you heard of this? It's fantastic. Yeah. So it's also an ethnography of um, peer review. Mm -hmm. So she sat with a number of peer review panels, mostly in the US, I believe, um, for major fellowships and grants, and uh, watched and talked to the academics as they conducted um, review of, of applications. And so she produces this very interesting ethnography of disciplines. So she looks at how history as a discipline operates differently from political science or from economics okay. or from literary studies. So for scholars, I think it helps us um, in really profound ways to understand both how we work as a discipline and also um, how we misunderstand ourselves. It's cool. great. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, I really yeah. recommend it. And um, yeah, what's the most interesting place you've ever been for research? Uh, so, um, Last summer, mm -hmm. I went to look at the conservative, the British Conservative Party archives, which are held at the Bodleian, right. and discovered that you have to actually write um, for permission to consult sets of those records to sitting members of Parliament, mm -hmm. um, or sitting uh, Conservative Party officials. So I wanted to look at the um, Whips papers from the interwar years, you know, almost a hundred years ago, and at that time the sitting Whip was Gavin Williamson. And I wrote for permission a very anodyne letter saying I was a scholar, I would like to consult the papers, and received a letter very quickly back that said, I deny you permission. Okay. Because I believe that only whips should be able to look at the whips papers. Wow. Yeah. And I was denied access. Right. You know, the, the 1922 committee, um, Gray Brady, I think his name is, did give me permission. Mm -hmm. But it was astonishing to see how sort of captive archives, you know, captive um, by their holders, um, can still really be withheld. You know, the, the bodily yeah. doesn't, it holds them, but it doesn't control them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it reminded me of something maybe 10 years ago or longer. I'd gone to consult the AFL-CIO archives, which were, at that time were held by the AFL-CIO in its own building in Maryland. And um, was studying you know, labor and communism and the AFL's you know, very elaborate campaign um, to collaborate with, and in sometimes cases push, the US state to repress communists. And in that case as well, a number of those records are withheld from 
archivists or from scholars. So mm -hmm. the law department records were not available. Many of the records where um, for departments where kind of the sausage gets made mm -hmm. were withheld from the public. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think um, captive organization um, archives often are the most fascinating. You know, you wonder if there's really something buried in there or yeah. if it's just paranoia, you know, yeah. but we don't know. There's another way of saying yeah. Yeah, and just to end on, what's your favorite album of all time? <laughs> um, I don't know that I would have a favorite album of all time, but uh, I would say uh, in the last year, maybe because of Me Too, I've been listening to lots of angry women's music. So mm -hmm. I've been really enjoying Hole. Remember Hole? Live oh, Through oh, This? Yeah, that's a fantastic yeah. album, right? Yeah. I love Beyonce. I love Lemonade. You know, that's been a fantastic album. So that's been on repeat yeah. in my car. Great. Well, two very different albums. <laughs> well, 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 Jennifer Love, thank you very much for thank joining you. me. Um, we're looking forward to talking about the paper on tonight and yeah, seeing what it develops into later yeah. on. Thank Great. You. Thanks very much. Thanks, Liz.